Well, good morning once again. It's uh, always good to see you here as we gather together as the saints of God. And, uh, you know, as I was reflecting on the words of the songs that we just sang, I mean, um, there is no place that I'd rather be than here uh, singing the Lord's praises, looking into his word with you. Kathy said to me this morning, she goes, can you believe that it's already the middle of July? And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, wow, time really does fly by. I mean, we say it all the time, but when you stop and you think about it, it really does. Well, we're going to look at what we're calling the church's mistake today. So I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. There, There are actually three seminal passages that we'll look at today, and so we'll jump around a little bit, but we'll try to stay anchored once we get there. Uh, but we'll start in 1 John chapter 2. And if you've been with us, this is the eighth message. Uh, we're almost to the finish line. This is the eighth message in our 10-week summer series on the church. And we have so far considered the church's master, the church's makeup, the church's mission, the church's management, the church's message, the church's method, the church's ministry. And today we want to examine the church's mistake, which in my estimation as we look at Scripture, is the chasing after the approval of the world, which among other things includes adopting the world's practices and, and their philosophies and their, their values. As we'll see today, the Scriptures give warning after warning after warning about worldliness. I was talking to someone recently, and this person's not from our church, but they were telling me about some circumstances that they were going through in their life, and they told me that they're constantly getting themselves into trouble because they are a people pleaser. Essentially, they said to me, to avoid any chance of conflict, they they just try to please everyone. And of course, I shared with them that first, that is not sustainable. That is not sustainable. You cannot please everyone all the time. And second, that should never be our goal as Christians, right? Our goal, our priority as the people of God is to, is to please Him and then let the chips fall where they may. We can be loving, and we should be loving. We can be kind, and we should be kind, but we need to care much more about what God thinks than what other people think. And I love how Moses laid out this very idea with the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Essentially, Moses told the people that as long as they obey God and they keep his commandments, the Lord's hand of blessing would be upon them. But as soon as they capitulate to the pressures of the world and divert their attention off of him and his ways, the Lord would then withdraw his hand of blessing on them. And this truth is reiterated over and over in the New Testament as well, especially as it relates to the church. And this is the church's huge mistake, adopting worldly practices and worldly philosophies, essentially trying to please or win the favor of the world. And the result has been God's removal of his hand of blessing on so many churches. Our elders meet every month, and we met this past Thursday. And during our meetings, we always take the time to thank the Lord for his faithfulness to us. And I've said since the 
inauguration of Grace Life Church that, that God has had his fingerprints on our church from the beginning. And we do not take that for granted. We want to be faithful to him, and he certainly has been faithful to us. And so this is what we want to drill down on today. How has the world affected the church? Because as James said in James chapter 4 and verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility against God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are strong words. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility against God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so here's the approach that we want to take this morning as we look at this perilous mistake. Three steps to identifying and combating worldliness in the church. And so first, we need to better define worldliness. So the first step is worldliness defined. Worldliness defined. So look at with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So here we find the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, making three statements as it relates to the world. First, we're not to love the world. We're not to love the world. The word love here is the Greek word agapao. It carries the idea of a a deep fondness or an affection. We're not to have a deep fondness or an affection for the world. The word world is the Greek word cosmos, and as you may know, it has uh, many multiple meanings in the New Testament. For instance, in John 3, 16, we find that God so loved the world. And he loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to come to this world and to to die in the place of all who would believe in him so that they may have eternal life. The world that God loves is not the world that John is referring to here. The world that God loves is the sea of humanity, the sea of humanity that he created. The world that we are not to love has nothing to do with people or the physical earth, but it refers to the world system that is operated by Satan, who according to 2 Corinthians 4.4 is referred to as the God, small g, of this world. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Worldliness, defines worldliness as the organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from God. Worldliness, he says, is a love for this fallen world and a heart attitude that ultimately rebels against God. Perhaps like many of you, I grew up in a church where there was a list of things (laughs) that were considered worldly. Sound familiar? We were told that Christians do not participate in these things. Christians are not to have anything to do with these things. Oh, there were rules about hair. Guys couldn't have hair that was too long. Girls couldn't have hair that was too short. 
couldn't drink alcohol, couldn't play cards, couldn't play pinball machines, couldn't dance, couldn't listen to certain kinds of music, or even couldn't use certain kinds of instruments. And on and on I could go. I mean, the list was long. The list was long. And on the list were all these things, none of which, by the way, were in the Bible. (laughs) This was a man-made list of all of the things that are worldly that Christians are not to be a part of. Now, you remember back in the day where if there was a beat to music, that that was considered worldly? And so we had to listen to elevator music as kids while all the other kids were listening to songs that actually had some sort of a melody and some sort of a beat. I I got to Bible college, and they had essentially the same list of rules. And all under the guise of these things are, are worldly. Christians are to be separate from the world, therefore we should not participate in any of those things. But even as a a freshman in college, at Bible college, I'm wondering, where did the list come from? Who made up the list? What goes on the list? Who determines what goes on the list? None of this stuff is in the Bible. So who makes up the list? And see, this this is a big part of the problem we misunderstand what worldliness is. And so my, my hope today, my prayer today, is for us to be able to drill down on the meaning of what the Scriptures are talking about when it gives warnings about worldliness. Now that's not at all what John means when he says that we are not to love the world. Worldliness is not external follow me on this. It's not external. It's not things. It's internal. It's not extrinsic. It's intrinsic. Worldliness may manifest itself in outside activities, but it's rooted in a sinful craving of the heart and the mind. And so we're not to love the world, which means that we're not to love and embrace the world's philosophies and their values that are perpetuated by Satan. So first, he says, we're not to love the world. Second, John says, we're not to love the things in the world. And this makes sense. Again, things in and of themselves are not sinful, but the devotion to or the love of things can certainly be sinful. For example, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. If we love things more than Christ, we have been drawn in by the world. So worldly then, at least in part, is the condition of being concerned with that which is temporal rather than that which is eternal. Third, John says, if we do love the world and the things in this world, it is proof that the, fa- that the love of the Father is not in us. In other words, you can't love the world or the temporal things of this world with a deep affection and be a Christian. And Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. John goes on to say, this temporal world, which is Satan's playground, feeds lustful desires and selfish pride, 
But take heart, he says, the world is passing away, so we are to concentrate on doing the will of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How often in Scripture do we find that the relationship that we have with the Father is a relationship of a father-son relationship or a father-child relationship, and as part of that authority-submission relationship, we are to be obedient to God, to His will, to His revealed will. We are not held accountable for that which He has not revealed to us. Does that make sense? We are not held accountable for things that we don't know or that we can't know. But we are 100% held accountable for that which we do know, that which we have been given. And we've talked much about the sufficiency of Scripture in our church, that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Over and over in the Bible, it says we are to do the will of God. We are to do the will of God. We are to do the will of God. There are certain things that God knows and that God will do that he will not tell us about. And we need to be fine with that. And we need to be good with that. The secret things belong to the Lord your God, but the things revealed belong to you and to your sons forever. We need to be anchored in the word of God. How do we spot worldliness? Well, we spot it by doing the will of God, the revealed will of God that we have in our possession. I was looking around my office this past week. (laughs) I I bet I have 100 Bibles in my office. I mean, I have the Word of God translated by many different translators. I mean, I I can't even imagine. There are some people, there are people groups who have, do not have the Bible in their language. And God bless people like um, the Browns who are in Indonesia, who are working on translating the Bible into the Saluan language. And God bless those who are with other ministries that are doing the same. I think we've gotten soft. I really think Christians today have gotten soft. We have no real true pressures on us as it relates to Christianity. Nobody is saying you can't go to church, you can't do this, you can't do that. The heart of the Christian is to do the will of God. And so that is worldliness defined, okay? Second, we want to examine how to spot worldliness. So the second step to identifying and combating worldliness in the church is worldliness detected. Worldliness detected. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, and we'll be here for a while until we move on to our third passage. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, says this, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power 
Avoid such men as these. So I want to go through this here. And I want to first consider the noisimus of the last days. The noisimus of the last days. It's not a word we use a lot, but noisome means immoral or bad. The noisomeness of the last days. Look at verse 1 again. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And all that Paul has already shared with Timothy in this letter, he says, oh, it's going to get worse, by the way. He says in verse 1, in the last days, difficult times will come. Noisome days will come. Consistently in Scripture, the last days refer to the church age or the age of grace. This is the period of time that we are living in right now. The age of grace or the church age began at the Feast of Pentecost with the raining down of the Spirit of God who indwelled all believers. You remember the powerful message that Peter preached at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. And when he did, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ and the Spirit of God indwelled them. Unlike what happened in the Old Testament economy. God would allow the Spirit, He would give the Spirit for empowerment for kings for special purposes in the Old Testament, but not every believer would possess the Spirit of God. So all this changed at the Feast of Pentecost. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And so we are living in the last days. This is the church age. So from Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost all the way up until the coming of Christ which we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, these are referred to as the last days. The last days. But, but, but Paul seems to be indicating that there is this progression of difficulties that will come. It's sort of an already but not yet scenario. It's already happening, and we see it. It's already happening. Difficult days are here, but more will be coming in the future. The word difficult means perilous or grievous. It could be translated violent or ugly. Increasingly perilous, grievous, violent, ugly, immoral days are upon us. This kicks to the curb the whole dog and pony show of the false teachers of the prosperity gospel, doesn't it? This also doesn't bode well for the post-millennialists who believe that Christ will come again only after the world is sufficiently Christianized. My question is, how's that going? Paul tells Timothy that we are in perilous times, and they're not going to get any better. Verse 13 says, the evil perpetrators of worldliness will proceed from bad to worse. And so that is the noisomeness of the last days. Now let's look at the nexus of the last days. So second, the nexus of the last days. Look at verse 2. For men will be, and listen to the description that Paul lays out to Timothy 2,000 years ago, okay? They were in the last days then. We are still in the last days. Think of the exacerbation or the progression of these things now. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, 
irreconcilable. By the way, something just popped into my head. I get in trouble sometimes when I actually say what pops into my head. <laughs> but if you see, see where it says disobedient to parents? Did you see this? There was an article out. I don't know if Fox News covered it or, or who covered it. There is a gal that is suing her parents because she didn't ask to be born. Did you see this? I mean, this is how stupid things get. This is how ridiculous things are. She is a, almost a grown woman. Like She looks like she's in college. She's suing her parents because she didn't ask to be born. Help me with this. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of, of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So nexus means the central point or place, okay? And I believe this is what Paul is saying here to Timothy, is that these characters that are described here, all of these 18 descriptors, these characters are in the church. They are in the church. The context is still false teachers, and Paul is still speaking to Timothy about the difficulties of the pastorate. So Paul is saying that in the last days, some in the church will mirror those in the world. And they'll do it under the banner of religiosity. Notice that he says here in verse 5 that they hold to a form of godliness. They hold to a form of godliness, but they are unbelievers. In other words, they may say they're a believer and perhaps have been embedded in the church for years, but they are not regenerate. Verse 7, they, like their followers, never come to the knowledge of the truth. And how are they exposed? These unbelievers show their true colors by preying on those who are weak in the faith. And this is why they should be avoided, because they influence others. And this is also why Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 25 that he must be equipped to correct those in opposition. You cannot have an anything goes church. You cannot have an organization, a business, a government, where people can just do whatever they want to do. There has to be order. This is why God instituted human government, right? He instituted human government so that we would have common laws for a common purpose. Now, the government's a mess. I worked in government for 11 years. I know the weaknesses of government, and I know now the liberality of government, as that has increasingly become more liberal. But there has to be common laws. There has to be some commonality as it relates to knowing what we are to do. And so God has given us a lot of revelation as it relates to the church. And these people, they don't measure up to those who are to be in the church. So Paul tells Timothy 
that they are t- that he is to protect those from those who are in error. And notice this comprehensive description of these so-called church people. I mean, this is this is off the rails. We don't have the time to go through each and every one of these, but I will say I did this week, and and all eighteen of these descriptions are are translated well here. They're easy to understand. I'm not going to go through every single one of them. They're easy to understand. They're accurately uh, translated here. But again, Paul says in verse 5 that these unbelievers in the church who model themselves after the sinful world, they do it under the cover of religiosity. Paul says they hold to a form of godliness. They're not godly, but they hold to a form of godliness. They're not truly of God. They hold to a form of godliness. Do you ever go to the fair or the amusement park, and they have those mirrors that make you look skinny? I love those things. I always call Kathy over, honey, honey, look at this. I was thinking about getting one of my home. <laughs> but the idea here is that the appearance doesn't match the reality. So I look pretty good. I look pretty good. But the appearance doesn't match the reality. It's a form. And I think that's what he's saying here is that, that they hold a form of godliness. They're not godly. They're not skinny. But they have a form of skinniness, but it's not real. And that's what I believe he's talking about as it relates to those people. And so you can imagine when people like this that are described here in 2 Timothy 3 are embedded in the church, and maybe embedded in the church for years, sometimes decades, how difficult it is to deal with. And so we've looked at the noisomeness of the last days, it's going to be difficult. We've looked at the description of the nexus of the last days. There are unbelievers in the church that model themselves after the unbelieving world. And now third, let's look at the navigation of the last days. The navigation of the last days. And this is really at the heart of what we need to know as Christians. What does Paul tell Timothy as to how to navigate these last days? He says here at the end of verse 5, avoid such men as these. Really, to keep our guards up and not to be taken in by those who might try to lead us astray. Paul told the church at Corinth that bad company corrupts good morals. Not just for us, but especially for those in our charge. We were the parents... (laughs) that would tell our kids, no, you can't hang out with those people. But dad, no, you're not hanging out with them. They're not good for you. Bad company corrupts good morals. I look back on my own life and I think about the missteps that I've had in my life. And a lot of the times it was because I was with the wrong company. Think about it. Bad company corrupts good morals. There there are three tests to help us to determine if a man is a false teacher or a man 
falls into this category as one who is holding to a form of godliness. It's easy to remember. You can write it down if you'd like. And I made it up, but it makes sense to me. Number one, his greed. His creed, I'm sorry, his creed. What does he believe? Okay, if we want to drill down, we need to find out his creed. What does he believe? Number two, his greed. His greed. What is most important to him? And then number three, his deeds. What is the outgrowth of his life? His creed, his greed, and his deeds. And you know, we don't use that word avoid a whole lot these days, do we? But it's such a helpful word as we navigate the Christian life. Last week in our men's Sunday school class, I taught on a man's eyes and how we are to avoid putting things before our eyes that could cause us to sin. You know, we can control that. That's on us, what we choose to look at. We are to avoid looking at certain things, men and women, children as well. We're to avoid looking at certain things. It seems like we are much better with understanding the do's than the don'ts. But a substantial part of the New Testament deals with the don'ts. We're not to do this. We're not to be involved with this. We're to avoid this. And these are helpful for us because we can see it. Hey, you're going to get yourself into trouble if you hang around with the wrong people. Parents, have the spine to tell your children, no, you're not going to hang out with these kids because nothing good is going to come of it. Nothing good is going to come with you hanging out with these kids. They're going to get you into trouble. I just watched an episode of Andy Griffith one of the more wholesome shows that are on television back in the 60s. And the new kid moved into town. You remember this episode? There's a new kid that moved into town, and Opie and his friends began to hang out with the new kid. Well, the new kid was a a troublemaker. He stole apples from the store, Stole tomatoes, he threw tomatoes at the owner of the store. And these kids were getting into trouble because they were hanging around with the wrong person. And after all of it was found out, Andy, Opie's dad, says, you can't hang around that kid. He's not good for you. And so parents, we have to recognize that just because our kids want to do something doesn't mean that it's good for them. They are not old enough and mature enough and wise enough and discerning enough to decide those things for themselves. We must do it for them. And so bad company corrupts good morals. We should be able to spot people that fall into this category because it's evident. These are the descriptions that we have. And so if we're looking at it, what does a person believe? What's most important to him? What's the outgrowth of his life? Avoid these kinds of people. So we've considered worldliness defined, worldliness detected, and now the third step is worldliness derailed. And I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12 for this. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verses 
1 and 2 say this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, the world system that that we spoke of earlier. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. See, again, another reference to following the revealed will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we combat the draw of worldliness in the church? We start by realizing that Jesus came to the earth to overcome the world. So follow me with this. John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, Jesus said. I have come to overcome the world. I have come to overcome the world. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of comfort. It gives me a lot of, of comfort. That doesn't mean that we're going to have it easy in this life. Christians, you're just going to have it on easy street. We see that's not true. It's really just the opposite if we look at Scripture. Because our citizenship is in heaven, this world is not our home. You remember the old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me, and you finished the rest because I forgot it. (laughs) But I think you understand what we're saying. We, We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. In John 15 and verse 19, Jesus told his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates us. No one likes to be hated, but in this case I don't mind. So the more we're like Christ, the more the world will hate us. The more our church is like Christ and does things his way, the more the world will hate us. Why? Because as we said, Satan is the God of this world, small g, and he hates God, and he hates those of us who are his. I don't want to go too far with this, but if you are loved by this world and popular in this world, I'd be very concerned. I like the quote by John MacArthur. He said, you cannot be faithful and popular, so take your pick. When we think about being in the world and not of the world, it means, yes, we are physically present in the world, but we don't embrace the values of the world. That's at the heart of worldliness. We're to be holy as he is holy. The word holy means to be set apart, set apart from the sinful mindset and values and philosophies of the world. 
The Apostle Paul expressed this sentiment to the church at Colossae in Colossians 2.8 when he said this, See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. Which, again, points to the reality that worldliness is intrinsic. It's not extrinsic. In other words, as Christians, we can enjoy the beauty of creation and many of the physical things of this world, but we must never embrace the world's values which are opposed to God. Having a Bentley or a Rolls Royce is not worldly. And certainly having a 2005 two-wheel drive Dodge Ram pickup with roll-up windows and rust around the fenders. That's not worldly. Listening to music with a beat is not worldly. Having drums on the platform, that's not worldly. This is not worldly. It's a thing. It's a piano. Things are not worldly. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it refers to worldliness. It's not extrinsic. It's not physical. It's intrinsic. It's the philosophy of the world that we're not to embrace, not the things in the world. We are in the world as God's people, but we're not to be of the world. So in other words, we're not to have the same mindset as the world, but we're physically in the world. And we can enjoy God's... We, we, I mean, this is the summer of vacations for two years, people were bound to their homes because of the virus, and now it's like an epidemic. Everybody is going on vacation as much as they can, and God bless them. I'm looking forward to going on vacation. Vacations are good. I think God created them. We can go and enjoy the ocean. We can go and enjoy the physical things that, that, that God has provided on the earth. That's not being worldly. That is not being worldly. Money, having money is not worldly. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. Do you see where the Scriptures are, are sort of narrowing down the definition here for us of worldliness? Wearing culottes is weird. <laughs> I'd never even heard of what culottes were until I, I think it was in Bible college, and then you know what they are? I think. They're like, they're not a dress. They're not shorts. They're in between. Dumb. <laughs> Why would you wear those? Oh, my goodness. Because if you wear pants, it's worldly. No, it's not. Pants are not worldly. We're called to be modest. You see where all this goes? We need to reject all this goofy stuff that we've heard our whole lives as what is worldly. That's not worldly. He's not talking about that. Instead, we are to conform ourselves and our minds to Christ. And this is the daily activity and commitment that we see here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The battleground is the mind. Satan's going after the mind. 
Paul is calling for us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the constant renewing of our minds. What does it mean to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Transformation is the continual process of constant change from the inside out. How do we renew our minds? By saturating ourselves in the things of God, by putting what is right in our minds and before our eyes. It's the Philippians 4 8 principle. If we lose track of Christ and the mission that he has laid out for our church, we fail. Worldliness has no place in the church. Instead, we are to, according to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17, to separate ourselves from the unbelieving world. Come out from among them and be separate. This is why Paul says that we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. And it also means that we cannot allow immorality to go unchecked in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunker or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So the church defects when it embraces the philosophies and the values of the world. It's the church's biggest mistake to try to please the world or the people in the world. The church are for Christians. It's not for unbelievers. And this is why we talk so much about the church gathered and the church scattered. I had a great gospel witnessing opportunity yesterday where I talked to a gal for some time about the glories of the gospel of Christ. The only way to have a right relationship with God is to recognize your sin before a holy God and to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. It was right on the T for me. I thank the Lord for opportunities like that, don't you? Where people actually are vulnerable enough to share their need and we can tell them about the glories of Christ. That's what we're to do. But we're not to associate with people who are immoral. They call themselves a Christian, but they're immoral. We're not even to eat with such a one. So the reminder today is we are not to be people pleasers or world pleasers, but God pleasers. Donald Gray Barnhouse told the story of errand boys in a certain part of London who all whistled out of tune as they went about their work. Apparently, this was a very peculiar thing that caught on, but it made folks wonder if it was because of the bells of Westminster that they were perhaps slightly out of tune. Sure enough, something had gone wrong with the chimes, and they were all off-key. Of course, the boys didn't know there was anything wrong with the chimes, and so they just copied their pitch. In the same way, Barnhouse said, we tend to copy the people with whom we associate. We borrow thoughts from the books we read and the programs to which we listen almost without knowing it. God has given us his word 
which is the absolute pitch of living and life. If we learn to sing by it, we shall easily detect the false in all the music of the world. And I think that's really at the heart of Scripture. If we know this, we'll spot that. If we don't know this, we can be taken in by that. Right? This is why God says that we are to be in His Word. We hide it in our hearts so that we will not sin against Him. The church's mistake? (laughs) Embracing the values and the philosophies of this world. And we must never do that as the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for your truth. Thank you for these three passages that we've looked at today that are very clear, very pointed, very to the point as it relates to our involvement with the world. And Lord, it seems that you have talked a lot about this. And interestingly enough, you know all about it because experientially, Jesus came to the earth. He experienced what worldliness is like, and he saw it with his own eyes. And yet he had nothing to do with it. He was not a part of it in any way. And Lord, may we take the same posture and stance as Jesus. We have no business playing around with the world. And yet, we are to come out and be separate and holy and live for you in this world. Yes, enjoying all the great things that you have given to us, but with the heart attitude that we desire to please you above all things with everything we've been given. And everything that we do in this life should be done to your glory and your honor. For to us to live is Christ and to die is gain. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.